Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Soul Things Podcast. My name is Brenna, your host, and we just talk about the hard things that we go through in our 20s. And today I am so excited to have two guests on my show, uh, Peter and Kelly Worrell, who are professors at Moody Bible Institute, which is a, a Bible college in downtown Chicago. And they have written a book that I love so much. It is called 20 Things I Would Tell My 20-something-year-old self. So every chapter is filled with really wise advice that I think we all need to know in this decade. So I'm so excited to have this conversation with you guys and maybe dissect the book a little bit and um, share with my audience these words of wisdom. So thank you guys for being on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah. So why don't we start off with just introducing yourselves, uh, what you guys do, kind of what life stage you're in now, and then we can kind of start talking about the book. Sure. Um, I am a professor of communications at Moody, so teach mostly writing and public speaking classes. Uh, I'm also the field chair of the music and media field, so music and media arts field. So oversee both the communications program as well as our uh, worship and Min- worship and media arts program and our music ministry program. So, yeah. And Peter. Well, is- I'm I'm English and uh, I still have a, an English passport and I do not have an American passport. So I am thoroughly English and married to an American woman, which she keeps reminding me. <laughs> and uh, I. I was raised in England and became a Christian when I was seven, but uh, my mother became a Christian at about the same time, and my father was not a Christian, so I was raised in a a kind of mixed environment where I would need to defend the faith, Mm. but uh, that that kind of went okay through high school. In my 20s, which is what we're writing about here, I I didn't have a lot of answers to life's questions. Mm -hmm. So I went to my undergrad uh, and then I went to Japan for three years. And then I went to Pakistan for two years then, but I'd already been for one year when I was 18. And that really confused me and got me. So I really needed to sort these things out. And then I came to Moody Bible Institute as a student. Mm -hmm. I came to Moody Bible Institute as a student, got my master's in, uh, in biblical studies then got my master's in teaching. I'm a K through nine teacher, but now I'm back at Moody training up K through nine teachers. And, uh, and so that gives you some overview. We go to a local church here uh, and, uh, in the Chicago area, which we love. And uh, we have two adopted children. One's called Daryl and he's age 13 now, but he's African-American Latino. And then we have one called Amelia, and she's 10, and she's Chinese. So we've got quite an international family. Yeah, I kind of love the story about how you guys met, too. It's kind of interwoven in the book. Do you want to share? Sure. It's a little bit different depending on who tells it. (laughs) Yeah, let's get POV Kelly. That's right. Let me tell my version. We met, so we arrived on the Moody campus at the same time. So I came in the fall of 98 as a brand new professor. So I was 28, 29 when I started teaching there. And Peter arrived on campus, like he said, at that same time to go to the graduate school. And it was about a month into the school year. And it was a Friday afternoon. And at the time, our main cafeteria was under construction. So they had these three funny little hidden away cafeterias set up, temporary dining rooms. And so that Friday, I had it in my head that I wanted to have lunch with somebody. Didn't know who, I didn't really know many people yet at Moody, felt very, a little bit lost and you know disconnected still. Didn't know anybody. So I went to the first temporary dining room And I looked around, that was the one I was familiar with and looked, walked through the dining hall, looking for anybody that looked friendly or familiar, didn't see anybody, walked right out and across campus. And I thought, well, Moody has this crazy tunnel system, which when you're new is super confusing and it's easy to get lost and turn around. And so the other two dining halls were somewhere down in that tunnel system, which was still very foreign to me. 
I still get lost down there after 25 years. Um, and so, but I went down there and went to the second dining hall and same thing, walked through, didn't see anybody that looked friendly or familiar, I mean, friendly or familiar. And I walked right back out, walked back to my office across campus, was going to just miss lunch altogether. And then I thought, well, maybe I should try to find the third temporary dining room, see if I can find it. So I grabbed a book thinking, I know I'm going to eat alone. It's very sad. I had my book, went down, found the third temporary dining room. I was standing in the salad bar line and this gentleman came up to me, Dr. Green, and he was also a brand new professor in the graduate school. And so we had been in some orientation sessions together. And so he just said, hi, how's it going? And we chatted for a minute and I thought, well, this is the person I'm supposed to have lunch with. This must be it, the divine appointment. And then he left, left me in the salad bar line. Oh, so finishing getting my salad. And then he came back and he said, I'm having lunch with some of my graduate students. Would you like to join us? I'm like, yes, I would love to. And so he took me down there and introduced me to a whole table full of them. And Peter was sitting, I was sitting across from Dr. Green and Peter was next to him. I'm talking to Dr. Green through most of lunch. And then I overhear Peter in his British accent <laughs> say to somebody else down the table that Minneapolis, Minnesota was his favorite city in the United States. And that's where I grew up. And so I'm curious. And so I asked him why Minneapolis? And that was our first conversation. My, my parents had lived there for uh, a year. So okay. there, there was a reason why <laughs> it was my favorite city. I wasn't just making that up. Yeah. And, uh, and so we had a conversation. And then he told me in that conversation <laughs> that he starts smiling at me real big as I'm talking about something. And I'm thinking, like, do I have food on my face or what? Why is he grinning at me like that? And, and then he said, I'm sorry, but I just love your accent. Oh my gosh. I know, right? <laughs> that Minnesota accent. Pickup line. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's had, a moody cafeteria pickup line. She, really? She had a more, a more aggressive Minnesota accent at the time. And yeah. I, I remember because it sounds a little bit Scandinavian. Mm -hmm. So she didn't quite say that, but it, it sounded oh. it, it sounded nice in a boot. So yeah. instead of uh, instead of about, they, they tend to say a boot. Yeah, and, and so I, I really liked it. So I told her that I liked it. And I, I just thought I was being polite and uh, carried on for the rest of the day. Yeah. So yeah, so we talked for 15, 20 minutes, maybe at the rest of lunch. Later that day, I actually wrote in my journal that I thought I met the man I was going to spend the rest of my life with. Wow. Crazy. I don't recommend it. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> All the girls listening day, right now are like, I didn't. I know. Yeah. Later that day, then at the end of the day, I'm leaving my building where my office was, and I look across the lawn on campus, and there's Peter sitting on a bench with another girl. Oof. I know. I'm like, uh, oh, straight to the heart. <laughs> me you crossed it out of your journal <laughs> i know <laughs> I, I uh i i was yeah not aware that uh, this was all going on but, but but clearly just it worked out it clearly it you guys worked out. it, it, did, you it guys did work been, out eventually how long have you guys been married for now uh 22 23 years yeah awesome awesome, awesome. well thanks for married sharing. at christmas of 1999 1999. I think that was two years after I was born. Okay. Well, well, there you go. We, we, yeah. we met two years after you were born. <laughs> so sweet. Wow. Are we old or what? <laughs> I, love, I love a good meet cute story. So thanks for That's sharing. Right. <laughs> um, all right. So let's talk about this book. Um, I'm going to put the link in the description. You guys need to all go to Amazon or wherever you get your books and check this out. Again, it's called 20 Things I Would Tell My 20-something-year-old self. And you you co-wrote it. You both came together and wrote this. So I'm sure that was an interesting process. Writing. Well, that's actually funny because Kelly wrote an article first. So she right. wrote an article for a magazine and, and she published it. And then Moody Publishers came to her and asked her if she wanted to write it. And originally, I think you said no. Isn't that right? Mm. Yes, originally she said no. And then she had a conversation with them later. And she comes home to me and says, 
we're writing a book. I have no <laughs> idea this. So she just says, we're going to write this book. And I said, oh, we are, are we? And, uh, and then the way that we wrote it is that I, I took the pieces that she'd already written and then wrote out my thoughts on them, uh, which were about 2,000, 3,000 words. So it wasn't a terrible amount of, of stuff. And mm -hmm. then Kelly took what I had written and edited it and changed it because she's the writer. Okay. And, uh, and then we ended up with 20 things you can tell our 20 something self. But originally it was Kelly's idea. And mm -hmm. it was Kelly's uh, book that even had a different uh, 20. There was one or two of them out of the 20 that were different. Uh, something about hair, wasn't it? Uh, oh yeah, there was just a silly throwaway one. Was nineteen, I think, in the article. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. About not getting a perm, never get another perm. That was never get a perm. Got it. <laughs> I had in my twenties. I have big hair anyway. I just have a lot of it. In my twenties, I added a perm, so it was long and it was permed. So it was like yeah, that was the style. That was the style. It was yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't know her at that time. I don't know if I've seen her behind all the hair anyway. So, uh, yeah. so that, that one got replaced. Um, yeah. And then we published the book. And uh, I, I actually uh, assign it in one of my classes. So there's a class I teach called Faith and Learning. And not because I'm egotistical, though it may look that way, but because uh, at Moody, there's a lot of students who come in who have really profound questions mm. and they have the same questions because these 20 questions are things that we had heard from Moody students. Yeah. And uh, I was talking with my friend Ken Gates this morning about how uh, people in Christendom generally don't deal with the, the deeper questions. They just deal with things on a superficial level, move along at that level and then do life like that. Mm. And these questions, actually, they're not terribly deep. And uh, I, we avoided quoting the Bible in there, but we quote the Bible in there. So in other words, we quote the Bible a lot and the Bible drives our ideas, but we don't actually say, well, that's John 1, you know, or, oh, that's John 3.16, you know, yeah. because uh, another thing is that 20-somethings have been kind of ostracized from the Bible, some of them. Mm -hmm. And so we want them to get to the issues without getting turned off by, oh, here's another Christian waxing eloquent about the Bible, to mm -hmm. do that. And there are Bible studies that we've written that would accompany the book, but we're trying to get to the issues first yeah. and then say how they're informed from the Bible. Yeah, yeah. I really felt that even like reading it. Yeah, I wasn't like, oh, just slap a Bible verse on this problem and call it a day. But you guys really do try to tackle these hard things, which is exactly like what my desire is as like a believer at this age. It's like, I don't just want to like, oh, this is what the Bible says, but like even going like deeper to like help me understand the Bible even more, like by addressing yeah. it that way. So I really appreciated that approach. But yeah. so I'm curious, Kelly, so what sort of brought on you writing this article and eventually this book? Like I know you guys sort of, one of the things I love about this book is you guys do share some of your personal stories um, kind of interwoven throughout. But yeah, what really inspired you to, to write this article and eventually the book? Yeah, so I, my journey as a writer I did an MFA in creative writing at Roosevelt University um, kind of through my 30s. So Peter and I got married just before we turned 30. And then we entered a season of several years of just real pain after pain after pain, which a lot of us experience in life. It's kind of a, the Job kind of season, right? There's mm -hmm. just feels like wave after wave after wave of hard, hard, painful things. Mm -hmm. And so for us, that included the death of Peter's father, at the age of 56, um, and then several years of infertility, miscarriages, delayed adoptions, and then eventually both my parents passed away all in the span of about six years. So that was kind of, that encompassed my thirties, you know, it just was a rough decade. Yeah. And during that kind of the last part of my thirties, I was doing this MFA in creative writing and just really writing a lot, had to write a uh, master's thesis. So basically a book length manuscript mm -hmm. in creative nonfiction. And it was a lot of my life story and memoir kind of writing. And so 2012, 2013, I had a sabbatical from Moody. And the goal of that sabbatical was to go back to my master's thesis and turn it into a book mm -hmm. um, that I could shop around and maybe get published. 
So I was on that journey and I was writing really, as I was writing a memoir, also wanting it to be about spiritual growth, because that's a huge passion of mine. I did another master's at Trinity on spiritual formation and growth. Mm -hmm. And so using kind of the framework of the spiritual growth process and writing about different stages of the spiritual journey and digging into that using my own life as examples, but also using a lot of research. I love research. And so we pull that into the book as well. You know, contemporary research, Christian, not Christian, psychological research, um, all different things. And so having that inform as well, be well-researched in that. So I was writing through life, really written about childhood and written about the teen years. And so I got to this writing about young adulthood uh, in that process. And that's where the original, and I was blogging. So I was posting all of this writing on my blog. And so it was kind of a part of that process that the 20 things, the original title of the blog post was 20 things I might have told my 20 something self and put it on my blog. And my blog didn't have a huge following, but this article went a little bit viral. So people were sharing it maybe because we work at Moody and, and whatnot, um, work with this age group. So I'm like, oh, well, that was interesting. And so I sent it over to Relevant because uh, I knew some people there and they posted it and it did very well at Relevant. Uh, and so that's when I had already been in conversations with Moody Publishers about the original manuscript that I was working on and it was too memoir for them. They weren't going to pursue it. Um, but that book proposal was going to other publishers as well. And other publishers were interested. So I had two or three editors at different publishers that I was in conversation with about the original book proposal. And that's when Moody Publishers came to me and said, you know, we don't want to do this odd house is what that manuscript was. We don't want to do this odd house, but we think there's a book in this article. We think that's the book you should write. And that's what Peter was referring to. My first answer was no, I don't think so. <laughs> because I was in conversations with editors about right. this odd house. I yeah. thought, you know, I, I want to be able to focus on that. Mm -hmm. um, but then one by one, those editors said my platform wasn't big enough yet. And so they pulled out. So then I'm like, all right, let's pray about this 20 things thing. Let's think about it. Let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. Hence the manuscript. But I will say too, kind of the other big important piece of that was, you know, when I was doing this, I was, I think still late thirties, early forties, maybe um, looking back. So the, the writing the article, 20 things I might've told my 20 something selves, the perspective was here I am coming out of this dark, dark season. God has done a work of healing, mm -hmm. journey of healing that I'm still on. Mm -hmm. um, but as I reflect on my twenties and young adulthood and all that happens in that season of life. And then I look at my thirties because the thing about my thirties that I didn't mention is it's this horrible season of pain I did not handle it well. Hmm. My faith was on a knife edge. I was so mad at God for so long, three years, probably. Hmm. I was just mad. My primary emotion was rage. And, and God really had to break that down. And he did. And then the healing could begin. Hmm. But I look back, I'm like, why? Like in hindsight, looking back at that, just the ridiculousness of, at least that's my perspective now, like, who did I think I was? Like, why did I rail at God for three years? Mm. Uh, I was a Bible college professor, right? I was a seminary graduate. How did I get there? Mm. And so that's the question I kept asking, like, why did that happen? How did that, how could that happen? Yeah. And so that's why I'm like, what do I wish I had known better? in my 20s what do I wish I had learned better mm -hmm. in my 20s and had I learned it better my 30s may not have gone the way they did right so I often when I speak and talk about the book I often joke and say the more accurate title would be 20 things I was learning in my 40s or relearning that I wish I had learned better in my 20s because if I had learned them better in my 20s my 30s may not have gone so horribly wrong.
That was too long to fit on the cover of a book. So. <laughs> long that's the more accurate explanation of the perspective. Yeah. And there, there are 20 things that we're still learning, right? Yeah. They're not, these are 20 things that it's not like they're just for your 20s and then you're done. Um, for example, if I reread the book, I'd relearn some of the material I had learned in the book. Mm. I, I don't think, I mean, one of the things I've noticed in North America, and it, it would probably be true in England as well. So I'm not saying England's better on this. I'm just saying that I've observed it in North America is that uh, people try to get done. So people try to get done, you know, I'm done maturing, I'm done developing, I'm an adult now. And so I can watch television, I can chat with my friends about what happened on the television show, I can go to bed and I can get up and go to work next day. Nothing more to see here, it's all done. Mm. But actually the spiritual growth and formation, the way that it occurs is that you notice that, huh, Actually, Jim Wilhoyt talks about this. He, he's a, a Wheaton. And he talks about how God gets more and more and more transcendent. We, we study God and we see that he's holy, but the holiness of God expands. And we study God and we see that he's righteous, but the righteousness of God expands. At the same time, we study ourselves. And that little lie that I used to tell my goodness, I realize it's got self-image behind it and my self-image is horrible. And that self-image that's horrible is because I'm trying to build myself up. And, and so my self-image goes down and down and down and down and down, even after I'm a Christian. And my image of God goes up and up and up and up and up. And so you get this kind of separation of myself from God. And who will cover this gap? That's why I need Jesus. <laughs> so that's why I need Jesus to cover the gap between how righteous and, and authoritative and wonderful God is and how lowly and desperate and corrupt I am. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, I had a, a question uh, that I was answering yesterday about a particular sin. And somebody said, well, you know, we don't discuss this sin and, and, and we, we, don't, uh, we don't have this particular sin and people are accusing us of having this sin. And I said, well, I have it. <laughs> and I said, I, I've got it in this way. Uh, and I express it in, in, in this context. I don't have it in the way that those people are expressing it, but I have this sin. And these two pastors looked at me and they're like, huh, they haven't thought about it that way. Because yeah. you know, having that sin, yeah. that actually is freeing because Jesus will rescue me from that sin. If I deny that I've got it, I'm actually shutting the door to Jesus rescuing me. If mm -hmm. I acknowledge that I've got it, then Jesus can actually take care of it and rescue me from it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good word. That's a good word. Um, so for your 20s, like I know you guys are talking about, obviously it's not like you reach this pinnacle of maturity and like Peter, you're saying you can just watch The Bachelor if you want and chat about it with your friends. <laughs> Um, and see, oh yeah, like, you know, I, I feel comfortable with where I'm at and almost this complacency can set in, but I feel like why, why do you think your the decade of your twenties is such an important decade? I know they all are important in different ways, but what in particular about this one? Yeah. I mean, I think so many things are happening You're, I mean, it's, you know, becoming an adult, it's that transition from being under parental care and college, those four years of college, if you especially if you go away to and have a traditional college experience, there's really that aspect of transitioning into adulthood. And I know, you know, we've worked for, with college students for many, many years now, and, and you see it, you see so much maturity happening, even just in those four years, 18 to 22, um, how students change in that short amount of time. And that only continues then as you leave a college setting and go through your 20s you know you're figuring out who you are as a person you're separating from family in many cases and determining who am I going to be mm -hmm. um, and a big part of that is faith ownership like is this a faith that I am going to press into I am going to own and develop and feed and care for is my relationship with God mine um, taking ownership of that, as well as you're figuring out career moves. Many people are getting married, you know, so it's just so huge. Mm -hmm. um, all that 
happens to many people in those 10 years. Mm -hmm. Well, I was just thinking about marriage because many people get married in their 20s mm -hmm. and then many people get divorced in their 20s mm -hmm. and then many people get married again in their 20s and many people get divorced again in their 20s. And, and uh, I think that the key is that I'm looking to you to complete me. And I've got an image of who you are, but you're changing. Mm. What we don't see is how much we're changing. Yeah. So I, I'm bringing a different person to this relationship than I brought to begin with. And that's changing. Now, Kelly and I got married when we were 29 and 30. But still, there's the, oh, I'm this person today. And I'm that person tomorrow. Who am I going to be next week? Mm -hmm. And how does that person love somebody who's this person today? Who's that person tomorrow and, and who's going to be this person next week? And, and we change massively in our early 20s. The thing is, how good are we with change in ourselves and in the people that we're around? Do we love them because they are who they are? Or do we learn to love them regardless of that and have a bigger love for them that loves them for their sake rather than loving them for what they bring to me? Yeah. That's that's so important. It's so interesting being in this decade, like you're talking about change, because, yeah, I have friends that literally have kids and are married and are buying houses. And I have friends that have no idea what they're doing with their lives and they're traveling the world. Yeah. And, you know, so it's almost like you get caught up in this where where what am I supposed to be doing? Like, where am right. I supposed to be? And it's so it looks drastically different. Yes. Yeah. yeah it's like what like I feel like the difference between 20 and 25 versus 30 and 35 it's like there's a lot more change that happens in like oh at least like, I feel like in my life I'm like oh my gosh like I have no idea like relationally where am I supposed to be am I supposed to have a house do I go to grad school like all of these questions and I think there just feels yeah. like a lot of pressure so I don't know if you guys felt like that too <laughs> oh we, we did yeah but then the question is is somebody going to love you regardless yeah so do they love you because you're the successful businesswoman who has three jobs? And then what happens when you lose the jobs and lose your, your identity in that? Do they still love you? Mm -hmm. And are you willing to love them regardless of where they live or regardless of how wonderful their car is or regardless of those things? Because we tend to put a list together of things we're looking for in a spouse. And I I do think that's accurate with Christian and non-Christian, mm. whether they're sold out for God or they're not sold out for God, because if a Christian's sold out for God and they're married to somebody who isn't, then it's going to pull uh, around in circles. And the Bible talks about that in Second Corinthians. But these other things, like, am I rich? Am I poor? Am I, I mean, you even promised these things in the wedding vows, in, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, those kinds of things. And then it happens that they lose their job or it happens that they're sick and they say, oh, well, I never imagined this. And they, they distance from each other. Mm -hmm. So I, I think uh, love, loving well is a, a, an important aspect of what goes into to the book and then what goes into us in our in our 20s. Mm -hmm. One of the for your generation, too, as opposed to when we were at that stage, you have so many more options. <laughs> yeah. You know, just. The internet just exploded, you know, accessibility and ideas and options that weren't quite, it wasn't like that when I was finishing college and making my way into my 20s. Mm -hmm. It was a, it felt like, at least in hindsight, a more, a little bit more, at least, predetermined path. You know, pretty much all my friends went to college right out of high school and there weren't that bazillion job opportunities, right? You're kind of limited. So you, you did the next thing. Yeah. But I think the overabundance of options, both in schooling and career choice and travel and um, even dating, you know, mm -hmm. online dating, it's just like endless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's overwhelming. Yeah. It can almost feel, yeah, a little paralyzing because I'll have friends that, I mean, I feel like this generation too has such an entrepreneurial spirit because you can take your phone, start a podcast, you can do videos, you can do this and you can make money doing all of these social media things. Like there's just so many different like paths and it's like, wow, it's, it's a, it's a blessing in a way like, oh, wow, this is opportunities, but I definitely can feel like, okay, but like, what am I supposed to do? And Peter, I love what you're saying about like learning how to love well I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more into that of like how in your 20s like what advice would you give to people listening of like how do you learn how to do that how do you learn how to love people who are constantly changing in your life in this decade well that, that's dying to self so uh, you know YWAM has the discipleship training school or the dying to self school where they put them into different circumstances and they they have to learn what it is to live for other people and, and we have so many messages from the media, so many messages from society that tell us you can have it, you can desire it, you can want it, want, dream, desire. And what happens is these desires that we imagine never become a reality. So why don't they become a reality? Well, that's your fault because I haven't got this. And that, that's your fault because you're not bringing it to me. And I've got you and you're a grade maybe A minus. And A minus is okay, but there's this person over there who said this to me. And in my mind, I imagine that they'll be an A plus. Mm-hmm. Now, when I get together with them, because I'm the one who's making it all horrible, but they get down to an A minus. So I move on to another A plus. And I, I'm looking for this maximal way of living, which is uh, just to consume everything all the time. And, and uh, I mean, if we do that and we eat, then we would be gluttons. But the thing is that if we do it in our in our spiritual lives and in our in our interpersonal lives, that's considered to be you know, you're pushing on, you're being true to yourself. Mm-hmm. Myself is evil. I don't want to be true to myself because I'll end up with evil things. Okay. I want to be true to God, and and God may bring. I mean, you you see uh, Hosea. Hosea doesn't marry the ideal woman. <laughs> She is far from ideal. And she may have been like this before he met her. She may have been like this uh, after he met her, but she is unfaithful. She is bad. But the thing is that God gives him uh, Hosea Gomer to actually change him and actually teach him about what God wants to do. Mm. Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody go out and find the first prostitute and marry them. (laughs) Uh, though actually that might it might not be a bad idea to get to know some people who have been in that area of life and and see if we can draw them out of it but when you're dating somebody you need to be thinking more about yourself and about how can I die to myself to help serve their needs and look to them not that not that you become walked over and trampled over because that's something very important is to maintain your dignity and to maintain things but not to be so sold out on yourself that you you ignore them. Mm-hmm. And to date somebody who has a similar attitude to how can I serve you? So you end up serving each other and then you actually end up serving God as you're serving each other because the best way of serving each other is to bring each other to God. And you end up with a, a, a triunity of God, you and them working towards God. And, and again, forgetting about yourself because you are remembering God is an, is an ultimate goal, I think, for relationships. Yeah. Kelly, I know you talked about, there was something you said in the book about that. I can't remember which chapter, but you were like explaining about stuff going on in your head. I think you were like worried about something or whatever. And then you were, you like were reminding yourself like to love Peter well, I think was like the I one thing that she said. The room? It was my socks on the floor oh, <laughs> socks on the floor I don't I, um, I remember yeah. oh yeah I think it's to me it's sometimes it's the weighing up of the issue which seems feels so big sometimes especially when we're triggered yeah. you know his socks on the floor dirty laundry whatever <laughs> um can trigger something bigger in me you know it might be just a sense of being disrespected or unloved or whatever but if you kind of take a step back from that initial emotion um and think about what is the real issue and then the scale you know how does that weigh up against our marriage Mm. and my love for him and like he's saying loving sacrificially 
Like, is it really, is, is this really worth getting mad about? Like, is this really worth getting into it over? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. I also think to your, to your question that Peter's responding to, you're also up against so many cultural messages about what love is, yeah. what love should look like. And, you know, even the language we use of falling in love, or you can't help who you love, um, or, you know, the, the primacy of attraction and chemistry and all of those things that this is what love is mm. culturally, mm. Um, which is all, you know, not biblical, yeah. right? We don't just like, whoops, I fell in love. I felt, you know, it's an accident. Can't help it. Yeah. And just as easy as I fell in love, I can fall out of love. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, I, I saw a t-shirt recently with love is love uh, written on it. Just trying to say, well, you know, we, we know what love is and love is love and we love and you love and they love. Well, I think that the people who buy that t-shirt, who, who would have that t-shirt, would think, well, it's just a positive emotion. I have a positive emotion towards somebody, and therefore I call that love, or actually even it might be lust, mm-hmm. and I'll call that love. Yeah. Whereas love is for the other person, and it's actually bringing them into the presence of God, and it's self-sacrificial, and it's others uh, oriented to bring them into relationship with God. Doesn't mean it gets trampled on though, but it does actually get the person, the other person into God's presence because I'm concerned for their good. Yeah, yeah. You, I love the chapter that you guys have in the book about emotions. Um, that is something that I learned a lot from. I am a three on the Enneagram, so I ended up, but I'm like a wing two. So I can, I can be like pretty an emotional person as much as I am like a doer, but I love how you guys sort of break down, like, you know, I think there was a quote in the book that you guys talk about, like emotions are like a wave, which one are you going to ride? Like they're going to come like the positive emotions. Oh, this must be love. Or like the grief that happens or like, so like, how do you find that balance of like allowing yourself to feel these emotions and not letting your emotions lead you to sin? Yeah. I think we, we title that chapter. That point is evaluate your emotions. And so like you're saying, we are emotional beings. God created us that way. He gave us emotions. So emotions aren't bad and evil in and of themselves. They're going to come, like you're saying, and they are good uh, as long as we are thinking about them and evaluating them and not just assuming that whatever I feel is true and good and I need to act on it. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, my, my mom was a very emotional person and her emotions kind of ran our house. Mm. Um, and so she was my model, you know, as a kid. And so even coming into my twenties, I would say that was my MO. If I felt it, go with it. Right. And emote all over the place sometimes. <laughs> and we don't realize the damage that that can do. And just that simple Um, It sounds simple and it's simple to explain, hard to do, hard to live out of just pausing, like, okay, I feel this, taking a step back, first of all, naming the feeling, what is it that I'm actually feeling? Peter likes to talk about, you know, emotion, it's in this body somewhere. The emotion isn't over there across the room. The emotion is here. Um, And so what is the emotion and where do I feel it? right? Is my chest tight? Is my head hurting? Um, my breathing funny? What am I, am I, what is it? And I think naming the emotion is helpful too, because sometimes the emotion that's presenting on the surface is only the front for what we're really feeling. Yeah. Um, and anger is a prime example of that. Often we present with anger when we're really underneath feeling scared. Mm fearful it's like that cornered wild animal right mm-hmm. we feel threatened and we're gonna attack mm-hmm. um, and so dealing with the anger and coming down off of that is one thing but I'm not really gonna address the situation unless I really go for that fear what am yeah. I afraid of mm-hmm. um, and sometimes that fear is also combined with grief sadness yeah. You know, as I look back at, like I was talking about earlier, those three years when I was just mad at God, 
That's what I was presenting with. That's what Peter had to deal with for three years is my primary emotion of rage. Mm. It wasn't until I remember him saying to me one time, it might even be in this book, like, when is it going to stop? Like, when is it enough? When are you going to let go of that anger? And I said to him, I don't want to let go of the anger because then I'll have to feel the pain. And so that anger, I was holding on to it for so long because underneath it, if I let go of that, I was going to have to grieve and grieve real hard. And I was scared. I was scared because the life that I had imagined for us as a couple and a family wasn't going to happen. I had to let go of that. And I didn't want to let go of that, right? It was the letting go of the dream. Mm -hmm. And as long as I was mad and could stay mad, I felt like I had something, you know, to hold on to. Yeah. Yeah. So getting at an emotion that's underneath and that's what needs to heal That's what we need to come face to face with and address Mm -hmm. um, and let ourselves feel it too. That's Mm -hmm. the other thing. It's no good to stuff it. It's no good to deny it. It doesn't, it doesn't go away. There's a a great book called the body keeps score that talks a lot about how our body holds on to these things. Mm -hmm. Um, So if we just stuff stuff and Peter has a great testimony of this, stuff, 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 and ignore it and present like we're fine. Like we're not feeling anything. It's not that we are not feeling anything. It's just, we're stuffing it and ignoring it Mm -hmm. and it's going underground and it's going to come back. It's going to come up. So for me, I was uh, stood in the line at Moody and it was a commencement ceremony. And I, I turned to Nancy Kane, she was called. I turned to Nancy and I said, Nancy, isn't it funny? I I'm 37 and I I just feel like I want to be in a ball. I I imagine myself in a ball underneath my desk uh, and and just kind of, I I think I'd rather be there than here in this line. And Nancy was the uh, psychology professor and she just said, you need to talk to somebody. (laughs) And I I said, no, 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 only screw ups talk to people. Oh man. And uh, within a week or two, I was talking to somebody and it was about how we men. So uh, I I don't know how many men listen to your podcast, but uh, we men, we tend to not have many words. I've had I've actually had conversations with men who will say, I don't feel anything. And I'll be like, but you sound a little bit angry right now. I am not angry, they will say. I say, "Mm, you know, well, just a little bit. But the thing is that they don't have a vocabulary for, and and they don't have a realization. They haven't self-reflected over what they're feeling. And and what I found in my research, and I found it to be true in reality, uh, apart from the research as well, is that we men are always feeling something. So in my 20s, I was feeling things and I had a a breakup with a girl that I didn't know how to process. And uh, I was trying to write and process it. And then the head of my school said, I noticed that you've been writing in class when you're meant to be teaching. Uh, I'll I'll send you down the hill to talk to somebody. And I said, no, 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 give me give me a couple of days and I'll be over. And I shut down my emotions and I didn't feel anything for another 10 years. Mm. So uh, I, I felt positive emotion towards Kelly and I, I, I felt some air, but colors wouldn't seem as colorful. So I'd look at a color and it'd be brown, but it wouldn't be truly brown. And orange wouldn't be truly orange. There'd be something about that. And in my research, I found that that's actually a sign of depression. That's mm. actually a sign of, of a detachment. And I found that I was really quite far gone with detaching myself from my emotions, where I'd got to an emotional uh, emotional condition of apathy. And apathy is right at the bottom of the emotions. It's near suicidal. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, my goodness, how did I get to this place? Well, and then during those years when I was falling apart, he was also still trying to hold it together and not letting himself grieve or feel. Mm-hmm. And so it's, as I was coming out and feeling better, then he's going through this journey yeah. of needing to really peel back. Well, and just just to warn you, if anybody's listening who's got emotional issues that they need to deal with, I opened up the can <laughs> and the emotions came out. So I was, 
I, I, I mean, I, I had felt like, oh, I want to be in my office. Oh, I, I, and then I actually began to talk about my emotions and I felt in the moment far worse. Mm. So it's actually not a case of, oh, I open up about my emotions and I immediately feel better. It was like, oh, we can be expressed now. Here we are. <laughs> and they just kind of fl flooded out of me. And I remember being sat at the computer desk downstairs and I was trying to play a computer game to take my mind off things. And I could feel the emotion crawling up my back. And then it went up my neck and it went into my head. And it was like this really dark, horrible emotion. And I'm trying to play this computer game to try to take my mind off it. Oh, yeah. And uh, people prayed for me. People, um, people talked with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I read a number of books. And it took about seven years to get to a place where I would now say that I'm mentally well and, and emotionally well. But uh, at that time, I'd, I'd buried so much for so long. It was a case of getting it all out into the open. Yeah, yeah. I, so I do have guys that listen to the podcast, and I have some guy friends that I've talked yeah. to. But it's so interesting, like, hearing how they, pro like, tried to, a lot of them have, like, that emotional, like, stuntedness mm -hmm. almost in a way. And yeah. a lot of things that I hear is they try to make, logic like logical sense of the pain that happened yeah, like, that, that, oh, doesn't, it, that doesn't work all the time right. <laughs> and so uh, I totally yeah so like what advice would you give to like the people listening who yeah they're like should they go to counseling is that like what is like the best or, like, well they, they can call me if they feel familiar with me they can call Moody Bible Institute and ask to speak to Peter Worrell and they will put them through to my voicemail uh, I can't promise I'll be there at the time, but I, I would call them back if they left their number. Uh, if they feel suicidal, they should talk to a doctor or somebody who can help them at once. Mm -hmm. There's no two ways about that. Uh, I, I feel very strongly about suicidal nature, that that's not just something we need to talk about. That's something where you need to get maximal help. You need to get it immediately. Mm -hmm. But uh, mental health... Um, that the mental health philosophy of just uh, talk nicely and, and there's something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is kind of just a, a positive way of speaking and, and viewing yourself. Mm -hmm. I don't put that much trust in it, even though it's, uh, it, it's popular. I, I, I do put trust in it when it comes to Jesus. Mm -hmm. So if you have a conversation and you bring it back to God, if you have a conversation, you see that God is in control and God is managing the world and God is managing you and he is going to help you through this if you submit to him, then I'm all for those counselors. So a biblical counselor. Counselors are very, very different from each other. Our son has seen a counselor, didn't put a lot of uh, value in that one counselor that he's seen, but he has seen other counselors that I would put a, a value in. So counselors are not the same as each other. Mm. And so find a counselor who believes in God passionately mm. and talk to them. If you're not up to talking to a counselor, I am not a counselor. I am very much not a counselor, but I, I would listen to you if you wanted to talk to me. And so just make sure that you open up and start talking to somebody. It may be hard. You may go on a long journey, but it will get you to Jesus in the end. Mm -hmm. yeah that's good you guys talk a lot about a lot of different things in the book I know you also talk about things like rest or building foundational worldviews and things like that out of the 20 chapters that you guys have written uh if each of you could like maybe pick one that really stood out to you and something that you would want to like highlight to somebody listening yeah I've been asked that question a number of times since the book came out and I think as I as I saw that you wanted to talk about it I was reflecting it. I think my answer probably changes depending on the work that God's doing in my life currently. So different seasons, it's something different. Um, so I'll just mention, I wouldn't say it's like necessarily top of the list. It's hard for me to order them, but I would say the one that he's pressing in on me again, because again, these aren't things we just learned in our twenties, um, two chapters, the habits chapter, make healthy habits. And then right after that, I think is rest. Um, I'm still a terrible rester. I confess that in the book and it's still something I struggle with. Um, so I'm coming off of 
since I stepped into my new position at Moody, it's just been very, and COVID and all the things, um, it's been a real stressful few years. Uh, and so I knew coming into this summer, we have the great um, blessing of both being professors. So both having space in the summer uh, for just a different life rhythm, which I tend to fill up. Like it's just my MO, like all the things, all the things I couldn't get done in the school year. Now all those things need to happen in the summer. Uh, and so Peter and I were just talking about again this morning, I'm intentionally trying to put in rhythms of life this summer that are healing, restorative, mm. restful, um, recentering on what's truly important. Yeah. Uh, with God, with our family, with my own health, and those things. So, so those are the two that he's doing another level of work on right now for me. For for me, it's live love. Mm-hmm. So uh, I I grew up as a Christian uh, in my in my house with my mother. I became a Christian when I was seven, and uh, I had to do all kinds of important things. So I, I lived by doing, mm-hmm. and, and I showed God that I loved him, but it wasn't even really. My, my uncle, who was a Christian, uh, said to me, where is your joy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, um, I have it. He said, no, no, you don't. And he was very honest with me. He's like, no, no, you don't really have joy. And I, I went away and became a missionary at age 18, didn't really have joy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then... God has wanted me to have that. And there, God has broken into my life and he has loved me well by letting me fall from grace, uh, by letting me sin horribly and work out the results of that. And, uh, and in, in going through that, those stages of life, desperately hanging on to him, it's kind of like I was on this great ship of my own building and, and then realized that I didn't know how to sail it and I didn't know where to go and I hit rocks. And now I'm in rags, but God has picked me up and put me on his ship and, and God is sailing it wonderfully. And, and so if I submit to God and I live loved and I live cherished and I, it, it is such a wonderful place to be. Mm-hmm. And even when things go terrible, they go terrible for a reason or to, to actually grow me or, or, or something like that. And mm-hmm. so it becomes a perspective that you have of, I am loved. God is loving me right now. How is he loving me? Yeah. And there's a, an audio version of our book. And I can remember reading the chapter. And as I'm reading the stories about how I, I'm living loved and, and how I get choked up actually reading the, the book and I'm, I am so loved. I am so cared for. And I, I realize more of that now when I'm 52 than I did when I was 21. Mm, yeah, I know. I feel like one of the things that like I'm trying to like press into like this perspective change is like God is in control. He's powerful, but he's also good. Like, I know that sounds really simple, but it's like, it's like kind of like what you're saying. It's like having that right perspective of who God is to help me see myself better. So that like all the areas of my life that I'm like pouring into can come from that place. But it's such like, I feel like I have, it's hard to grasp. It's like, <laughs> you know, like. It is hard like, to grasp. Yeah. It is very hard to grasp. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious. So I'm 25 uh, and I'm just curious. Could you guys kind of give us like an overview of like what, where were you guys at when you were 25? Like, what were you doing? Like emotionally, like what were like, I don't know, just kind of give, paint a picture of like where, what was life like for you at 25 and what would you say to that person right now? <laughs> yeah, for me, 25, I would have been, so I graduated from Cedarville university at 21 I was, grew up in Minnesota and then went to Bible college there for two years, transferred to Cedarville as a junior in Ohio, and then graduated with a degree in communications and an emphasis in technical writing. Mm-hmm. And I knew coming out of that, so all of my peers were being recruited to companies like IBM and whatnot. They would come to Cedarville and recruit to write computer manuals and things like that. And I remember sitting down with my college advisor 
and she was encouraging me, you know, to go to a job fair or something and meet with IBM. And I'm like, I don't want to write computer manuals. That's horrible. <laughs> and, and I said to her, I'm like, I want, I want to be in ministry. I want to use my writing in ministry for eternal purposes. And she, that professor had shared with us as writers that kind of on the side, she was writing Bible study curriculum for kids or whatever. And I reminded, I said, you know, that, that sounds interesting to me. I want to do that. And she looked at me and she said, that's really nice, Kelly, but that's not a job. Oh, like crushed me, but I was determined. And this is pre-internet, right? I didn't have the, the internet. So I went to the school library and tried to figure out who these Christian publishers were. And then I sent my paper resume to them. And one of them was in Schaumburg, Illinois, outside Chicago. Yeah. And it was a little Christian publishing company called Regular Baptist Press. And they hired me uh, to write and edit children's curriculum. And so I moved to Chicago at 21, 22, not knowing a soul and landed at that job and got an apartment. I had a roommate for a little while. That wasn't a great situation. Uh, and so by 25, I was living alone, just had my own little apartment. And it was the upstairs of this old house. I've always loved old houses. Uh, upstairs of this rickety, awful old house. I mean, it looked like it would blow over. <laughs> but I had the whole upstairs and Gertrude Lederman lived downstairs. She had lived in the house all of her life uh, and hadn't really maintained it. And so, but it was in downtown Wheaton. So if you know Wheaton, it's this beautiful little sweet suburb, um, little Christian Mecca too. And, but like, so I could live in downtown Wheaton great location, walked to coffee shops and library and so on uh, for $350 a month. She let me live there. Nice. Never mm -hmm. raised the rent on me. I lived there for seven years. Oh my gosh. I know this funny one bedroom apartment and it would shake. It was right on the train tracks. And so the whole house would shake <laughs> when the train would go by. And, but I loved it. And she let me paint everything so I could make it real cute and cozy. Yeah. And yeah, we, we so actually lived there together. We kept we living there for a year and a half after we were and married because it was so cheap. <laughs> I, I went down and had a conversation with her, and I, I said, Gertrude, we feel that we need to raise the rent. A little bit. <laughs> never raised it on me for seven years. Oh my God. Said, Can we pay you a little bit more? And she said, if you want to. So, so we, we paid her 500 yeah, exactly. Go crazy for downtown Wheaton. Yeah. yeah. So I was living there, mid-20s, 25. I was going to seminary by then. So after I moved to Chicago, a year, I think I'd been out of undergrad a year, and I felt the itch to study again. So the great thing was the publishing company I was working for paid my tuition to go to Trinity oh, nice. and study. So it took me four years, I think, to do a two-year degree because I did it slowly. I was working full-time taking a class or two at a time, loved the seminary experience. That was really stretching, found a community there. So I think that was a struggle in my mid twenties was community. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to a church that I loved and smaller church. And so there weren't a lot of 20 somethings in the church necessarily. There were a few that became good friends of mine. Um, so I was going to seminary working and I was also real involved in the youth group at the church mm -hmm. so involved in ministry and so that funny little apartment hosted a lot of junior high girls oh. <laughs> they would pack my little apartment out <laughs> and we would have these sunday night bible studies they would come over and, and some good. of them still keep in touch with kelly now yeah I, yeah uh -huh. I, I was in japan so i was in a, a little town called tosi amada Okay. And uh, it was on the island of Shikoku, which is the fourth of the main islands. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, uh, I had pretty much got to the end because I got paid a lot of money for doing very little work. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it sounds amazing. Like, wow, you get all this money. For, but I realized that my soul was dying. And I, I was, um, 
I had a chance, my, my father was very hedonistic. And so I had adopted his hedonism and my mother's Christianity and kind of was wrestling in this place. And in Japan, there wasn't a lot of accountability. So I was able to really embrace the hedonism. Mm. And, uh, and I realized that it wasn't making me happy. So actually, when I was in Japan, I paid for myself to go to Pakistan. And I paid for myself to have an interview with them. And, uh, and then they, they hired me and I went to uh, Pakistan after that. And then that kind of start, started to correct things. And then going to Moody Bible Institute, it started to straighten things out in my head. But uh, yeah, it, uh, it was a great time because I knew that I was done with hedonism, but I, I, it took me another two years to get out of it. But yeah. that's how it worked out. Yeah. And I should say too, I mentioned some of the great things. It also was a pretty lonely time. Mm. So mm -hmm. I had friends. I think something I struggled with is I felt like all of the friends that I did have had people, like a lot of them had moved back to the area and were still living with their parents or they had family here mm. or roommates. And so living on my own had its benefits, but it was also quite lonely at times. Yeah. Um, so that was rough. And then dating in my 20s was not a great scene. <laughs> we could a whole episode on that. <laughs> until I met him. And until her which also was hard, but um yeah I yeah I can feel that on the low the loneliness aspect too I think there especially like living in a city too I don't know I feel like people can be like oh I'm busy or I'm doing this or that and you're just like on the go and you're not making enough time for people and it can be like a really lonely lifestyle um so I definitely like yeah I I understand like the importance of community and finding a good church like it, it's just it's like it's so life-giving like I was super lonely until I found my church community here and um I can yeah I totally relate to that um so so for the people like listening most of my audience is like in their 20s um and I want them to go get this book again I'm going to keep plugging it but what is kind of like the biggest takeaway if somebody could take away like at least one thing from this book, I know you guys mentioned your favorite things, but it's like, we just want you to understand this because we wish we would have understood this in our twenties. What would be that thing? Yeah. I always say that if I had to write a thesis statement for the book, being the writing teacher that I am, um, it would be how to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that that wasn't the intentional thesis statement going into it. Wasn't what I was trying to do, but taking a step back, having written it, that's really what it does. It talks about like the first few 20 things talk about the life of the mind. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it talks about worldview. It talks about doubt. Mm -hmm. It talks about, you know, just thinking well, feeding your mind. Uh, and so the life of the mind, how do we love God with our mind? What does that mean? How do we do that? And the middle section are several kind of how do we live out our faith, right? If this is what I say, I believe, how does that affect every decision I make every day? Because it should. I should be a different person, even in the choices I make. And so it's things like we talked about habits and rest and feeding ourselves, even eating. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, remaining teachable, finding a mentor, things like that, like the decisions we make daily. How do I love God with my strength? Yeah. And then the last several things in the book are more kind of the heart, the soul issues. How do I love God with my heart and soul? Mm -hmm. And that's ones that we've mentioned about live loved, pressing into pain, evaluating your emotions, taking sin seriously, mm -hmm. embracing grace. Uh, our final one is prepare to be amazed just at, at what God can do, what he will do. He will be glorified. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. so. so if you if you think of Jesus, uh, they come up to Jesus and say, so what's so important? You know, what's the most important thing? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that those two things have become increasingly important to me when I think about them deeply and I realize I don't. <laughs> So I've been a Christian for years, for years and years and years. And I do love people more now than I used to. But I, I don't love them as much as I should. 
And as for God, who gives me that love for people, huh? Now, if, if you don't love yourself or you don't, aren't aware of loving yourself, think of how you give yourself food and think of how you give yourself clothing and think of how you give yourself what you need. Because if you don't, then you're going to die and that's even worse. Mm -hmm. you, you take care of what you need to be able to survive. That's the kind of thing that it's saying that we should do as Christians. We should take care of other people's needs as you take care of your own needs. But to love God with everything you've got, that's not something that we do. Mm -hmm. and, and there are times when I drive my car and I don't think about Jesus. And, and, and I, I do more now because I keep on telling people I don't drive my car and think about Jesus. So now I drive my car and I start thinking about <laughs> but, but even that, then I do that. And then I'll go for a forest, uh, walk in the forest preserve. And I'll be like, oh, this is a nice day. And there's God. God is around. God has made this weather. God has created. And it's suddenly this little picture I have, it expands so that it's God everywhere. And I love him. Mm. And so... If you've got this small love for God that kicks in on a Wednesday night, if you go to church then or just on a Sunday morning, that's too small. But if you remember to love God on a Monday and remember to love God on a Tuesday, and it's loving God. And I've had some conversation with some people in their 20s, and I've said, do you love God? Mm. And they said, now that you ask that to me, I don't think I do. Mm. And these people would say that they're Christian, but the first commandment, they haven't got. Yeah. Wow. That's like super convicting my heart right now, even listening to that. Like, it sounds so, it sounds so baseline. I think we can be so dismissive of it. I'm a Christian. Of course I love God. But when you actually think about that question, it's like, it's a lifelong lesson of learning how to do it that. Is, so. It is a lifelong lesson. <laughs> I do not love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but I want to. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, Romans says, uh, the book of Romans says, shall we sin that grace may abound? By no means. Because you're not compelled to do all these things to make God happy. Yeah. You're com compelled to do these things because God is walking with you. Yeah. And you can't, you know, say if you're this sinful, horrible person who doesn't care about his sin, walking with the perfectly righteous God. It doesn't go together. So yeah. you have to correct your life to show that you're you're walking with God but you don't have to correct your life to get together with God yeah. that, that's not the way it works yeah yeah oh so good I think I could talk to you guys for hours about this book about God about life uh you guys just have so much wisdom to give and I just <clears throat> thank you again for taking time to be on my yeah. show well, thank, thank you for you, having Brenna. us it, it's been very easy to talk to you too Brenna I'm very grateful that you called us yeah, thank you guys again. Uh, thanks everybody for listening and joining me on this journey of just navigating life through your 20s. And remember, even in the hard spaces, his grace abounds. See you next week. <laughs>